This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There are hunter-gatherers who believe that a fetus is made of accumulated semen. So a woman who wants to have like a smart, funny, athletic baby will have sex with the smart guy and the funny guy and the athletic guy to get the essence of all those guys into her baby. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like this assumption of monogamy and exclusivity. Today, I have one of the biggest names ever to grace the stage of this podcast in the form of Chris Ryan. Chris is known for many things, but is perhaps most notable for his book, Sex at Dawn, which he co-wrote with his partner, Casilda Jetta. It challenges the conventional views on sex by diving deep into our ancestors' history. It provides a fascinating look at hunter-gatherers and what we were once like with a particular emphasis on sex. Many of the points they make about the evolution of our sexuality are controversial in the anthropological community, including the notion that women are far more sexual than our current society suggests or allows for. I don't want to go too deep into Sex at Dawn in the intro, partly for fear of misrepresenting the views that Chris goes on to so succinctly express in this podcast episode, and partly because I wasn't really supposed to be reading it at all, because I was supposed to be reading Chris's more recent book that came out in 2019, uh, Civilized to Death, which continues to question the way we live now and a conventional view on hunter-gatherer societies. The thing is, he sent me both books, and the first one had the word sex in it. The rest is history. Chris has a PhD in psychology and writes for Psychology Today. He is a truly fascinating man and speaks in a very deliberate and thoughtful way so that he sort of has you under his spell. It's intoxicating in, in a good way because uh, intoxicating sounds like it could be bad, but I think I mean it in a good way. His own podcast, Tangentially Speaking, is absolutely huge for that exact reason. I think people like listening to him speak, and it's just a nice feeling. You're sort of at home in a comfy armchair with a glass of whiskey. Listening to Chris talk with all sorts of intriguing guests, it's one of the biggest podcasts in the States, so do check out Tangentially Speaking. He goes on rambling conversations with all sorts of people, including me. I was one of his most recent episodes, so if you're going to listen to one of them, make sure you listen to that one, of course. Um, but that's when I took the opportunity to ask him on here. Thankfully, he said yes, and today talks about everything from societal monogamy and sexual games and tribes today to the female sex drive and his own nomadic lifestyle. And since there was just so much to talk about, we went on for a couple of hours rather than the usual one hour, so I've carved it into two parts like a, like a pumpkin for Halloween, something I've only done once before with Sadia Hamid, 
Uh, I think he's worth it. I hope you do too. The only thing is, this means that for the first time since it began, there or begun, begun or began, who even knows? Anyway, the point is, there won't be a bonus episode this week, as I'll add it to the end of part two next week. However, I hope that those who are members on Patreon.com or subscribe to the VIP area on Apple don't feel too shortchanged as I'm working on three bonus episodes for Halloween this year. Um, That's going to be a lot of work, uh, but hopefully it'll be worth it and it's going to be really good. It's going to be with Dr. Soham Das, who people loved back on the podcast just a few weeks ago, and they'll be available to everyone, but still, it's extra content for the holidays, right? By the way, I'm going to try every Monday at 6pm UK time. So I think that's about five hours difference to New York. You can look that up wherever you are in the world. I'm going to be putting these videos on YouTube and premiering them, which means that I will be alongside the video in the chat, able to sort of talk to you, interact with you. So if you feel like that's something you would enjoy, either re-watching it or watching it for the first time there, please come subscribe to youtube.com slash andrewgold1. I really look forward to seeing you there. If you've missed this week's one because you've listened to the audio after Monday at 6pm UK time, then come along next Monday at the same time. I'm going to be trying to do that as much as possible. Hopefully see you there. So coming up soon, hopefully, are crime scene cleaner Ben Giles, Dr. Soham Das is back for those Halloween specials, and I've touched base with comedian and super intellect Robin Ince. Trying to arrange that for now, trying to get him down, but he's super busy. But I think that's going to happen. But for now, it's Chris Ryan. Alright, say something. Say something, I'm giving up on you. Good, got you in my headphones now. Yeah, can you say something? Can I hear you? What, 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 what? Okay, so you want me to record this on my end? Yeah, if you don't mind, that would be great. Uh, Alright, do you want to... Alright, I'll start recording now, but maybe we should do a clap just so you'll sure. it'll be easier for you to sync later. Sure, do you want to clap and then I'll clap after? Uh, we should clap at the same time, right? Yeah. All right. Cool. So I'm going to clap on three. One, okay. two. I'm just going to do it straight after. It was too much pressure to do it at the same time. Yeah. Okay. I don't need that that clapping. I'm above clapping. Yes. <laughs> You're above clapping. All yeah. right. So so is this better blurred or unblurred? What do you think? I think unblurred, you know, because you've got a lovely painting back there. Yeah. Yeah. An arch over my head. Yeah, your background looks nice. I'm tr- I've just moved house and I'm trying to work on uh, the background, right? And it's just a white wall at the moment. But I got, can you see that plant and that light? Beautiful plant, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's good. It's a it? sad little. It's a sad little plant. <laughs> it's a little, t- little little plant with a light above it. <laughs> oh no, I know. Yeah. I'm gonna get. Um, led strips you know you can get little there's a lot of the podcast the youtubers they've got all the like like a like purple lights around maybe that table i don't know but yeah, yeah you've got a lovely painting where are you at the moment guatemala antigua that's pretty yeah cool. yeah this is uh just a, a rental place here that we're we're in mm. but it's pretty it's pretty nice yeah have you been to guatemala no, never been to yeah. Central America. What are you doing there? Like, whenever I've spoken to you over the last few months, you've just been in a totally different place. So, what what's your deal with that? <laughs> uh, well, the deal was my my partner and I were planning to go to Spain 
um, in September, October. And then as the date approached and, and the Delta variant was spreading and I thought 17 hours in an airplane just doesn't sound great right now. But I really want to get out of the U.S. I've been stuck in the U.S. for a year and a half or something, which is a long time for me. And um, so we were like, okay, where can we go uh, where we can get some work done and just chill out and, uh, you know, somewhere not too far away, not too expensive, a little exotic, a little interesting. And I had been to Guatemala in 89 when I was... 27 years old and I've always wanted to come back and uh so we're like oh let's just go to Guatemala and get an Airbnb and chill out and get some work done and so yeah. that's what we've been doing you're quite are you quite a nomadic person yeah yeah I I've been moving my whole life when I was a kid my family my parents uh moved a bunch I ended up going to uh, three different high schools in four years and, um, probably lived in, I, th I think we counted them up once like 20 houses or something by the time, you know, I finished high school and then I went to college for a few years and then, um, and then I took off shortly after that and, and traveled internationally for my twenties and thirties. And then I, I settled in Barcelona, uh, for, if you add it up, probably 20 years. Um, mm. But I was there in different stints uh, in my 30s and 40s and into my 50s. And uh, yeah, and then my first book came out and um, came. I decided I wanted to be in North America, partly because, um, you know, to have access to media for the book because suddenly, you know, it, it was a big deal. I was getting all these interview requests for television and, uh, you know, we we're talking about doing a TV series and people want to do documentaries and blah, blah, blah. And, you Is know. this Sex at Dawn? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, and my dad was getting, my dad had some health issues and it seemed like a good time to be closer to him. So, um, my wife and I, uh, at the time moved to Vancouver. We were there for a couple of years, then Portland, then LA. And so it's just like, yeah, I've been my whole life. I've been moving. I keep yeah. saying I want to settle down. And in fact, I bought some land in Colorado with the intention of building a house there and sort of, you know, having a, I guess, nesting as I, you know, approach sure. old age. Um, but now the fucking country's falling apart and, you know, democracy is probably on its last leg. So I'm not so sure I want to huh. put down roots there. So maybe I'll just keep wandering until I fade into the sunset. Yeah. Do you mind me asking, what are you in your 40s? <laughs> no, I'm uh, almost 60. Are you? Yeah. Well, I thought you might be in your 50s, but I thought I'd err on the side of caution and say 40s. Yeah, but you erred way on the side of caution there. You got, you got to, you've got to. Imagine if I got it wrong. Imagine if I said 50s and you were 41. And you, I don't know what anyone looks like. I imagine everyone's yeah. the same age as me and then they're not. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't care about things like that. I, I don't care if you get my name wrong. Uh, you know, if you haven't read my books. It, like, you know, there's all these things people think. I've just never cared about any of that stuff. Age, you know, whatever. I 
I feel like when when someone gets upset because someone forgets their name or gets their name wrong, I feel like that's such a that's such um an admission of insecurity. It's insane, you know. Yeah, your name's Bob. Like, who gives yeah. a shit? You know, it's like I, I I always say it's it's like you you know we're picking names out of a out off a list. You know, <laughs> most of them biblical. Sure. Uh, your name isn't you know he who dances in the sunlight of the early morning. Like, if if you had a name that meant something, then it would matter. But your fucking name's Bob or Jim or Bill or whatever. <laughs> It's, you know, you may as well be named 16 or 14. Like, who cares, man? It's just the sound. There was a great um, comedy show by a guy called Dave Gorman. He's a British sort of sort of comedian, but he's like a educa- almost educational comedian. And he did this sort of sh- this show where he tracked down all the other Dave Gormans with his name in the world. And it was like a comedy mm. kind of thing. But it's an interesting... That I, I agree with you. That doesn't mean anything. Your name, but then you do feel a sort of kinship that that a completely ridiculous, arbitrary kinship with anyone who shares your name. And you've, I think there are a few Chris Ryan's, and there's yeah. there's the singer Andrew Gold as well. Um, I spoke to his wife recently. He died about ten years ago, uh, and it felt a bit. It was like, oh, this because this is a person who had very different experiences to me. He's from America, and he's he played with the Beatles and people like that. Uh, but he had the same name as me, and it was something. It was like, oh, he's had some similar experience. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, you had some similar experiences, but not necessarily because of your name, right? I mean, if your name no. were Andrew Hitler, then you'd probably have some. <laughs> Some real similar experiences with the other Hitlers. Uh, sure. Yeah, I actually Googled you recently and, and came across that, Andrew Gold. Uh, yeah, I think there's there's an actor. I think he's British. He was in Doctor Who, apparently. Chris Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, there's a writer. I get emails for him sometimes who writes like military spy stuff, I think. Um <laughs> And yeah. I I get emails from people who've like run into him at airports and wanted to follow up on their conversation. <laughs> Do you ever just go with it? No, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to no. mess with another Chris Ryan. <laughs> For some reason, yeah. people who do get my name wrong always hundred percent call me Steve. Wow, I don't know why. See, I think there is something about names then, and I think I wonder if I'm talking about a one percent or zero point one percent of your pop, of your of your of your personality. If you're because there are people who are just Steves, and I'm not seeing that with you, but I wonder if you just have a bit of Steve about you, and you were named wrong. There's a movie called The Tao of Steve uh, a while ago, and I think it was all about like it was sort of based on Steve McQueen, you know, and this kind of like understated macho cool vibe and that that was the theme of the movie that there's a certain steve energy Mm. uh so i just assume i've got that kind of steve mcqueen yeah steve energy speaking of steve mcqueen now there's this there are two really famous steve mcqueens you know that's confusing one's the director is that is he right yeah 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 a black director and then of course the others the you know macho Cool I was scared dude. of saying black just now, so I said director. I, I just was yeah. scared in case you can't. I don't know what to say anymore. Well, I capitalized black, so it's okay. Yeah, yes, I heard that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I heard the yeah, capitalization. I, I, I can't be, but I, I have to warn you. I tend to, mm-hmm. you know, disregard whatever the the current 
yeah. restrictions no, as long as are... you do it as long as you do it i had a guy on here who um taught his pug to do a nazi salute <laughs> oh that's right we are on the edge right <laughs> yeah you yeah. do what you want as long as i don't get in trouble like you please do a do a hitler salute go get your penis out um whatever you want <laughs> can i do a hitler salute with my penis <laughs> it depends on the length <laughs> <laughs> A little oh, mini God. Hitler salute. I certainly couldn't. <laughs> as as yeah. a podcaster, you'll appreciate this. Uh, sure. I got a, an email this morning from a publicist. I get them all the time of trying to book people on my podcast, right? Someone who's got a book coming out or, you know, some sure. fucking online course of masculinity or whatever the hell it is. Uh, this one was interesting. It was a publicist asking if I'd be interested in interviewing Henry Kissinger. Wait, is he alive? <laughs> that was my first question. That's going to be a boring interview. Uh, yeah, he is alive. He's 98. Apparently, he's, he's co-authored a book about artificial intelligence with someone. What? And yeah, with two other authors... But the the pitch was all about, do you want to interview Henry Kissinger, not the other authors? And I'm like, why is Henry Kissinger doing media, first of all, for the book? Secondly, if you had any idea who I was, you, you would know that this is a really bad idea. I think Henry Kissinger is a, you know, a mass murdering monster. Uh, so it probably wouldn't be a great interview. Well, but- they probably send out so many different you know emails to people like the, all the top podcasts and that kind of thing so still you know. doesn't explain how they got me but so anyway. as, a, as an in, as an interviewer then so let's say you had kissinger on and he's someone you don't w- would you be interested in that kind of thing having someone on who you who vehemently disagree with maybe you don't want to shout at a 98 year old you know well that's the thing if if he were um if he could defend himself then maybe i would but yeah i i i don't want to yeah I, I I don't want. It's a weird thing. I I feel like some. I don't know. My podcast. I try to be. I try to keep the tone really friendly. Um, even if there's a disagreement, I want to model. Um, uh, kind of you know courteous, uh, respectful disagreement. Um, but but someone who's responsible for the deaths of millions of people. It's hard to know how to calibrate a conversation with someone like that, you know? Um, so I don't know if he were in his, you know, 50s and um, this opportunity came along, I probably would accept it, um, you know, just f- because people like that don't ever really interact with people like me i don't think so there would be some value in that but it's weird i I'm, i don't consider myself a journalist like you're you're in a very different position and you know the way you interacted with the exorcist and and various people i mean you're also very courteous but you're also a journalist so i i feel like you come at it with a different set of responsibilities in the documentary yes but i i've noticed a big difference between i think a podcast is different because your the exorcist was sort of we just went out there as a group and we were trying to expose something whereas this is like you're, you're emailing with somebody and you're saying like hey do you want to give up your time and come on my podcast and like i so so even if people i really disagree with i've done i think 
a very similar thing to you. Just, just okay. You know, you're here to talk about your book or whatever. You're giving me your time. I'll, I'll put in a few little. But what about this? What about that? I try to come at if and and the other thing recently I've been thinking about is like the the term you know moralizing right I I never want it to look if even if I'm judging someone even if I'm saying like oh that's really you know you've killed three babies you shouldn't have killed the third or any of them to, you shouldn't have killed any of the babies um, <laughs> the first two was much the third was overkill yeah, that's three strikes yeah <laughs> yeah don't kill the babies I never want to suggest or in my tone that. Uh, you did a bad thing, but I wouldn't have. I want it to always right. be like I, I, there must be a set of circumstances under which I would have done what Kissinger's done, or what, and, and that he must have, unless he is the one percent of you know people who are psychopaths, he must have come at everything he did politically from a point of I'm doing a good thing. Yeah, that's that's the tragedy of it, right? This idea that uh, everybody, from their perspective, is acting out of uh, good motivations, you know? I mean, Stalin thought... I, I was just arguing with someone about this recently. They they, they posted some quote from C.S. Lewis, I think it was, who um, was talking about how he would rather be ruled by, um, you know, corrupt uh, oligarchs than do-gooders, because at least the oligarchs occasionally have something else to do, whereas the do-gooders are just constantly, you know, yeah. moralizing and, and chasing you around, scolding you. And my point was, there's really no difference. Everybody thinks they're a do-gooder. The, yeah. the question is just um, the degree of, of certainty, you know, and th- I think that's the problem. The the assuredness that my perspective is the right one and, you know, I'm going to convert everybody or, you know, convert or die basically is the choice that many people, millions of people face. Um, you know what you were saying before about not minding about books? I did email you to tell you this, obviously, so you, you know already, but you, you sent me uh, two, two of your books, um, Sex at Dawn and, and Civilized to Death. Um, and I was supposed to read Civilized to Death, and they were both, you know, on my Kindle, and I was looking at them, and that thing happens where I just like one of them has sex in the title, so I read that one. <laughs> you know, you read you the whole book in a week. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm I'm loving the book, and it's about sex, as I said. So you know, I'm happy with that. Um, yeah, what what led you to? That's a boring question, actually. I was going to say what you read. No, I don't. It doesn't. That doesn't matter, right? We descended from apes. <laughs> it's just a boring question, wasn't it? What what led you to write the book you read? Wrote, well, I have, but I have an exciting answer to <laughs> oh, that question. Okay, was it? Is it the story about um, monkeys and nuts? No, it's no, it's it's a story about um, Monica Lewinsky and nuts. <laughs> Fantastic. Go on. <laughs> Well, what happened, I was in, I was in graduate school and I was working on something totally different. Like, uh, I was, I was researching oncologists and trying to understand how doctors deal with existential stress. Like, how, how do some doctors deal with the fact that most of their patients are dying? Um, and it doesn't, destroy them and, and others get totally burned out. And so I was, that's what I was looking into. Um, and then, um, but it was, I'd been doing this research for over a year at this point and I, it was starting to wear me down. It it was like being around that 
much death was getting to me. And I realized I don't have a good personality for that. I'd be a terrible oncologist. Um, and, uh, anyway, this was around the time that, uh, the Lewinsky Clinton thing happened. And I was thinking about that and it, it kind of confused me because my understanding of the evolution of human sexuality was that men evolved to seek power and wealth and fame and all these things as a sort of a currency to acquire access to women. That the whole game is really about, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, is about impregnating as many women as possible. And so your genes go into the future and all that. And, um, and then I, we're looking at this situation where the most powerful man in the world can't have a consensual sexual dalliance with a woman, even if his wife doesn't seem to care, which Hillary didn't, um, without the whole world going batshit about it. Like, what is the issue here? It makes there's this weird contradiction at the heart of this, right? Was it not the power difference, though, that, you know, she was she an intern at the time? Well, that's what they say. Uh, but okay, what if Clinton had had sex with a female senator? You think it would have been any different? I mean, it was all just about dragging him through the coals and, and you know, all this sexual shame and, you know, marriage. Is, Hillary should be angry even if she isn't and she should <laughs> divorce him and, you know, just all this moralizing nonsense. Anyway, so I was thinking about this and uh, I, I was in a bookstore in San Francisco. You remember there used to be bookstores. And uh, I saw <clears throat> a book called The Moral Animal uh, about the new science of evolutionary psychology. And I was studying psychology in graduate school. And I thought, evolutionary psychology, that's interesting. And I took a look at the book and it seemed really interesting. It's by Robert Wright, who is a really good writer. Um, I've had him on my podcast. Uh, anyway, so I, I bought this book and I read it and it was fantastic. It was so well written. Um, it, and the way he structured it was really smart. It's alternating chapters about Darwin's personal experience with evolutionary principles that are uh, illustrated by Darwin's biography. So, you know, they're sort of about mate selection. And then it talks about how Darwin ended up marrying his cousin who, you know, and all this stuff. So it's really clever the way you learn about Darwin as a person and his theories as you go along. And this book basically outlines how men and women have differing agendas as far as reproduction goes. Men are trying to impregnate as many women as possible. Women are being very selective about who they let in because they need a provider who's going to stick around and take care of them and all that. So you you know the narrative. Everyone's heard it. So I read this and it was like, wow, this makes perfect sense. This explains why you know, it's so hard to get laid when you're a man and so easy for women and blah, blah, blah. And at the time I was living with a woman who was a stripper in San Francisco and so I, she had all these friends who were strippers and strippers in San Francisco tend to be really smart, like political, um, women who, many of whom are also lesbians, by the way, a little, little known fact. Huh. Um, 
anyway, so I, I was hanging out with all these really smart women and, and where I worked, I was working in a nonprofit that was all women. So I just had all these really smart women in my life. And I started like talking about this book. And most of the women were just like, no, dude, that's a bunch of nonsense. That's like Victorian, outdated, you know, male, phallocentric vision of human sexuality. And, you know, ironically, these strippers were saying to me, like, we don't, we don't like sex because it leads to money or, you know, a man taking care of us. We like sex because we like sex. Like, we like it for the same reason you do. The, the rest of this is a bunch of nonsense. So I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. So what I did, I, I went and looked up the original sources in this book. So I started looking at studies of, of um, anthropological studies of hunter-gatherers and, and their sexuality. And I found like, wow, this is weird. Like there are all these hunter-gatherers who aren't sexually monogamous at all, who have all these rituals of, of actually intentionally discouraging pair bonding and encouraging more sort of intermingling. There are hunter-gatherers who believe that a fetus is made of accumulated semen. So a woman who wants to have like a smart, funny, athletic baby will have sex with the smart guy and the funny guy and the athletic guy to get the essence of all those huh. guys into her baby. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like this assumption of monogamy and exclusivity. And then I started reading about primates and, and I, I discovered bonobos. This is like in the early 90s, I think, 92, 93, somewhere. And I'd never heard of bonobos, who, which are equally relevant to human evolution as chimpanzees. They're equally related to humans as chimpanzees. But we always hear about chimpanzees and male dominant and violent and warfare and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Jane Goodall studies. Um, but we never hear about bonobos. Well, it turns out bonobos are female dominant. They're extremely promiscuous. They use sexuality for social bonding. They're the only animal other than humans that has sex face to face, looking in each other's eyes, kissing and huh. holding hands and sharing food. And female orgasm is extremely important and, and omnipresent in bonobos. I never heard of them. Like, why, why aren't they mentioned in these studies or in this book? Um, so anyway, it was like I, I started pulling this thread on a tapestry and the whole thing just started disintegrating. And uh, so I switched my, my research from, you know, psychological profiles of oncologists to a study of human sexual evolution in prehistory. And, uh, you know, the rest is... Hmm. history yeah that, that eventually led to sex at dawn yeah much more fun i'd much rather work on that the oncology stuff yeah i couldn't i couldn't do that either so so with what you're saying um why does it seem and it is anecdotally but why does it seem growing up uh that all the men i knew for example were so horny all the time and and the women were obviously with exceptions and, and, and you know, big exceptions, uh, but tended to be more guarded and stuff. Do you think that's socially constructed? I think there there is um, sort of a, a seed of that in biology, but that it is 
amplified mm-hmm. by uh, our social context. So it's kind of like jealousy. You know, I, people ask about that a lot. And I think it's a parallel explanation. I think, you know, the seed of jealousy is fear of losing something that you cherish, right? So it's the fear of losing your partner or access to your partner. Um, but there are, and I think that's natural. I think the fear of losing something that's important to you is natural. And, and it, mm-hmm. it, you know, goes across mammals. It's not only a human thing. Yeah. Um, but I think the expression of that in Western society is, hugely amplified by media and and myths and stories that are constantly um underlining this message that uh you know true love means you only have eyes i only have eyes for you right and um, if you love a woman, when a man loves a woman, he'll sleep out in the rain if she says that's the way it has to be. He'll do anything. Or, you know, the, I, we talk about, uh, every breath you take in, in Sex at Dawn. How this is in a, you know, Sting wrote that song about surveillance. He had been reading Orwell and he had a dream. Uh, I'll be watching you. Every breath, every step you take, every move you make, I'll be watching you. He's thinking about, Orwellian state surveillance and people hear the song and they say, Oh, it's a love song. Hmm. What? Like how sick do you have to be to hear that song and think it's a love song? That dude's a stalker, obviously. <laughs> I suppose the, the music though sounds, it's quite similar to a lot of love songs, isn't it? The, the rhythm and the, the, the chords and stuff. Oh, I don't know. I don't know enough about music theory to comment on hmm. that, but well, you know, well, it's, it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, the, da, 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 da. it doesn't say I'm stalking you. Do, 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 do. <laughs> but you there's know, something, have something more menacing. <laughs> well, the, dun, 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 dun. the, the baseline is pretty menacing, you know, yeah. dun, 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 dun. It's, it's almost like a, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, the, the point is that, that, uh, women for thousands of years, have been implicitly and explicitly persecuted for openly expressing sexual desire, right? Uh, you get pregnant, you're not married, you're homeless. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna die in the streets. Uh, you're a whore. Your children are bastards. You're, I mean, it's in the language and it's, you know, still today, if a woman in Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, you know, most Islamic countries is raped, she is worthless. She's valueless. So, you know, much less if she has sex with someone by choice outside of marriage or she marries, she wants to be with someone her father didn't, you know, arrange or something. So women are still considered in much of the world, property, and still in the West even, you know, what happens at a wedding conventionally? The father hands the bride to the husband as if it's a property transfer. Um, so there's no mystery to the fact that women are terrified of acknowledging and expressing any kind of open sexual desire, even to themselves. I think, you know, women are dealing with 
a very deep conflict within themselves because the messaging is so clear and overwhelming that you're a dirty, horrible person if you feel any kind of open sexual desire. So, you know, I do think there there is, as I said, a seed in biology. Um, I think male sexual desire often expresses itself differently than female sexual desire. Male desire is more sort of constant and um, and sort of non-contextual. Uh, you know, a, a guy can just see a photograph or a, a mannequin and get turned on, right? Whereas a woman is much more likely to need some sort of intimacy and respect and admiration and, you know, actually know the person. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a different, it's like I said in Sex at Dawn, like men are sprinters and, and women are marathon runners. So to say who's faster is sort of a nonsense question because it's, you know, they're both fast. They're both horny, if that's the metric we're looking at, but it's different expression of it. Do you think the the confusing message that women are given in our society that you were just talking about is responsible for what I read in your book was 42% of women have sexual dysfunction, which which seemed alarmingly high to me. But I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't asked any women if they have sexual dysfunction so maybe they maybe they do well and also how are we defining dysfunction um i don't know exactly what statistic you're referring to but there was an interesting moment um you know i i co-authored that book with my wife casilda jetta who is a psychiatrist and was raised in africa in mozambique and there was a a moment where i said to her, I, I was reading this study of female orgasm, and I said, you know, 40% of women rarely or never have orgasm from intercourse. Maybe that's what you're referring to. And she said, well, check the, the research, because I think that's 40% of white American women. And I was like, oh, interesting. And I went and looked, and she was right. That was a study done of uh, American undergraduate students, most of whom I'm sure were white. Um, and her point was in Mozambique, that's not the case. And she had done sexuality research in Africa for the World Health Organization. So it wasn't, she wasn't just talking, you know, from conjecture. She had done research on this. Um, so yeah, I think culture is a very strong determinant of sexual function or dysfunction as the case may be so tell me then what do you think that tribes were like what was it like sexually how were they all getting on and another point one thing i wanted to ask like as a double question is there sort of a way that it's done or was done because we're talking about a time of like two hundred thousand years which is impossible for us to even imagine that length of time of tribes all around the world maybe doing different things yeah that's true they're they're are many differences um, among hunter-gatherers based on where they are and, and different uh, points along the last two or 300,000 years. But uh, there are also many universalities among hunter-gatherers. So when you're, when you're trying to paint a picture of human behavior uh, in prehistory, 
Of course, the archaeological evidence is very scant. There, you know, behavior doesn't fossilize, and it's it's difficult to um, sort of reconstruct behavior from bones, or you know, uh, or the remains of dwellings, stone dwellings, or something like that. So, what you need to do is you need to sort of look at different sources of of information and then ex- sort of see where they converge, right, and extrapolate that way. So, um, as far as the the sources of information that we use for civilized to death, we're we're talking about anthropology. So, looking at hunter gatherers um, that exist still, like the Hadza in Africa and, and various tribes in the Amazon and um, uh, and studies that have been done in the last hundred years or so, or, or um, first contact accounts from explorers and missionaries and all that. So whatever information we can get on how hunter-gatherers live or have been living, uh, you know, that's been reported on. That's one source of information. Another source of information is, as I mentioned earlier, primates that are closely related to humans. Um, so what are the convergences there? What can we learn about human evolution by looking at chimpanzees and bonobos? Uh, third source of information is human physiology and anatomy today. So look at the human body. What does that tell us about our ancestors, right? Just the same way you can look at our teeth and learn a lot about our primordial diet or the, the constituents, um, chemical constituents of our saliva or the, the digestive system, right? That tells us a lot about what kind of foods our ancestors ate. The same thing is possible with our reproductive system. So you look at our external testicles, that tells us something. You look at the shape and the size of the human penis. You look at um, you know, the chemicals. What does that tell us? Oh, well, all these things tell us the same story. That's, that's the point. And then the last, just to finish this series, the last, the fourth source of information is psychosexual research. So what kind of fantasies do people have? What kind of porn do they like? What kind of issues lead to problems in relationships sexually? So if these are the four windows into our sexual prehistory. And if you look through each of these four windows, you can start to get a sense of what's going on in that house, right? You can't go into the house, but you can look through four different windows into the same area. Um, and so what all of those sources of information tell us is that our ancestors did not evolve in monogamous nuclear families where a woman would need a man to take care of her and, you know, bring his, the deer that he shot back to share with her and her kids. That's the story that we've all been told. But, uh, as we say in Sex at Dawn, that's Flintstoneization. That's looking at the modern world and just sort of projecting that into the prehistoric past and saying everything must have been more or less the same, just a little more primitive. That's a failure of imagination. Things were not more or less the same. Things were radically different in hunter other groups. So getting back to your, your question, yes, you know, the Inuits are quite different from the, you know, a tribe living in the, in the upper Amazon in terms of their diet, certainly, right? 
uh, their clothing, the kind of shelter that they live in, but they're very similar in other ways. They share everything. All hunter-gatherer groups, wherever they're found in the world, um, their central organizing principle is sharing and interdependence. And this is not because they're noble savages. This is because sharing is the best way to mitigate risk in a hunter-gatherer group. So if you think about the sort of conventional view, the standard narrative, as we call it in Sex at Dawn, um, you know, uh, uh, a man would go out hunting and he'd shoot a deer and he brings the deer back. And he's only going to share that meat with his woman and his kids because he's investing in his own DNA. Um, this is this narrative is, you know, uh, Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins and Matt Ridley and, you know, whatever sort of standard scholarship you read. This is the presumption that underlies the this view of human sexual evolution that women are trying to trade sexual access to a man for sustenance and protection and all that, right? So it sort of assumes a nuclear family structure. But when you look at hunter-gatherers, you find that the worst thing you can possibly do, a thing that'll get you kicked out of the group, is not sharing food. And even if you think of it in a, in a practical sense, if I go and shoot a deer and I come back and I say, no, I'm only sharing this with my woman and my kids. Well, let's say something smaller where you don't need to worry about refrigeration. I shoot a monkey. I'm only going to share it with my wife and my kids. Everyone else is sitting around hungry and we're over here having a barbecue at our place. How's that going to go down? How well is that going to work? And then what's going to happen tomorrow when I don't shoot a monkey, but so-and-so does over there? It's just going to be constant resentment and anger and violence, right? And in fact, that's what happens. So when you study hunter-gatherer groups, what you find is that it's extremely important that everyone shares whatever they have. And I know this is difficult for us to imagine in our modern scarcity-based mindset, but this is what anthropological research shows, whether we're talking about the Inuit or, you know, the people in the upper Amazon or people in Africa or, or Australian Aboriginal people, wherever we find hunter gatherers, true hunter gatherers, what we find is that sharing is the central organizing principle. So these universalities and, and there are others, uh, respect for women. Uh, respect for children, the sense that everyone is an autonomous uh, being that can't be coerced into doing anything they don't really want to do. Uh, these principles are universal among hunter-gatherers. So once you realize that, then it's a safe bet to say, ah, then hunter-gatherers 100,000 years ago also had these principles because these principles arise from the way they live. They arise from the fact that everyone has access to weapons. So how are you going to co coerce me? It doesn't matter how big and strong you are. We all have spears and bows and arrows, and everybody's vulnerable to that. Um, everyone has access to natural resources, to, to the food, the shelter. Everyone knows how to fish, how to hunt, how to build a hut, how to trap a monkey, 
how to find uh, seeds and nuts and, and food in the environment. So how can you coerce people when you can't block their access to the things they need? Um, so we find these universal principles among hunter-gatherers everywhere. And that leads directly to sexuality in the sense that <clears throat> we're all sharing food. We're all independent people who can't be coerced and stopped from doing whatever we want to do. We take care of each other's babies. Nobody's saying, oh, that's not my kid, so I'm not going to you know, protect it from that snake. Uh, women receive support from the group in general because they're sharing food, as I've already said. They're sharing defense. They're sharing access to medicines and whatever. Uh, so women don't really need a man as in that kind of husband role, right, to supply, to take care of them. Uh, so once you understand those underlying principles, then it doesn't make any sense that men would control women's sexuality. Why? First of all, why would they? It's not necessary. Secondly, how could they? It's not possible. And so that's the sort of argument in at the heart of Sex at Dawn, I guess. That people were, would you say, polyamorous? Well, polyamory has lots of different... Um, sort of very specific um, meanings in the modern sense. I guess it's probably a good way to look at it. You could also call it ethically non-monogamous. Um, you know, and it, it there's a lot of not only differences in the way different people, different tribes might um, enact these things, but also individually – um, and we, and we never, we're not arguing that people didn't have unique, um, sacred relationships. You know, we, I think promiscuity is the best way, the sort of the safest way to describe it. But even that's problematic because in the modern parlance, promiscuity implies that you're having sex with strangers and there's really no intimacy. It's just sort of cheap and shallow. And that wouldn't have been the case with hunter-gatherers because they knew these people. They, you know, they all lived together in a group of 150 or fewer people and they all knew each other their whole lives. So there's no, there were no strangers. Um, so there's no like dating app promiscuity, right? This is, these are just different sexual relationships going on simultaneously. Um, so maybe, polyamory is a, a decent way to describe it um but there would have been you know in polyamory there are all these sort of definitions and and gradations and you know primary partner secondary partner tertiary partner and you know all these all this vocabulary around it um whereas i think with hunter gatherers it would have just been more sort of um normal if you imagine living with a hundred people and everybody's hanging out together all the time, sitting around the fire together all the time. There are just going to be different relationships that come and go and, you know, arise and fade away and return. And um, and these are all people that you you love. You take care of each other. You've got history, shared history. You're, you know, as a woman, you're breastfeeding babies that didn't come out of your body right but you love those babies and you love the baby the mothers and the fathers and it's all it's a kind of intermingling that i think is very difficult for us to imagine um but which was clearly the norm for our species for 
hundreds of thousands of years. And for people who are listening to this who have trouble wrapping their head around those numbers, um, anatomically modern humans have existed for about 300,000 years. Uh, in the book, uh, we said 200,000 years, but since the book came out, research uh, discoveries have been made that that seem to push that back to about 300,000 years. So this is people who look like us, <laughs> excuse me, who have the same brain size that we have, presumably have language, have uh, complex social networks. Um, so we're not talking about some sort of intermediary primate species, right? We're talking about modern humans, 300,000 years. Agriculture wasn't, uh, didn't show up in our history until about 10,000 years ago. So for the vast majority, 97% of our existence as a anatomically modern species, we lived in hunter-gatherer groups. So that is far more relevant for any discussion of human nature um, than whatever we're looking at in the last few hundred or thousand years. Isn't it amazing to think, I suppose I haven't given it enough thought. Um, imagine being a fly on the wall uh, 200,000 years ago, one of these tribes or our, our ancestors and stuff, and just imagining them. I can't imagine that sex thing so they're sort of a community and they've known each other for years and then one of them sort of just sort of nods at you know a woman or a man would nod at one another like do you fancy going behind the bushes um and i don't know and while i was with him last night well that's all right he doesn't mind he's just he's just not getting jealous is that do you do you try and imagine it like like that yeah sure and and also i don't need to imagine it because I, i've read so many accounts of hunter-gatherers um you know written written by outraged missionaries for example you know who saw this sort of thing happening yeah. or or contemporary anthropologists who you know recount what they've seen uh among the people that they were studying and that's pretty much the way it works it's hmm. um there does seem to be a desire for privacy in in most cases although there are many um, sort of rituals that take place among these groups where the sex is public um, and and sort of scheduled in a way. There's one one uh, ritual. It's called the the. I don't. I'm not sure the pronunciation because I've only read it. But Dutsi in Buana is the way it's spelled, and this was uh, written about by. Um, anthropologist who was living with a group in the upper Amazon. And in this group, they, there's a, every once in a while, the women will get together in the morning and they'll go around the camp singing a song that basically translates to, you men are lazy. Uh, you don't give us enough meat. We want meat. Uh, go out and bring us some meat, right? And as they're singing the song, they'll go around and the women have sticks and the men will be lying in their hammocks and a woman will go up to a man's hammock post and bang on his hammock post while they're singing with her stick. And they're all laughing. This is all a funny thing they do. And what that means is 
if you bring some meat back today, I'll have sex with you tonight. And uh. the woman who bangs on the stick will not be his normal partner. It's always someone different from her normal partner. So this is meant to motivate the guy to get up and go hunting, right? And so they'll go around and they're all banging on the sticks. And if the guy really doesn't want to go hunting or he doesn't want to have sex with that particular woman, he can say, oh, no, my stomach feels bad. And okay, they won't. He doesn't need to. But the other guys, well, they'll all like act really like put out like, oh, okay, all right, all right. And so then they get up and they get their bows and arrows or blowguns or whatever, and they, they leave the village together. And what they're hunting is monkeys. And when you're hunting monkeys, they're dispersed. So everyone will split up to go hunt individually. But what they do is they agree they'll all meet at this particular spot before they go back into the village. So they go out, they hunt for a few hours, then they come back and they meet. And a few of the guys got monkeys and others didn't. But what they do is they'll cut up the monkeys so that they all have meat when they go back into the village. Uh, into okay. the camp, right? So every guy who went hunting comes back with meat. So everybody gets laid and, and it's huh. a big party. And, and the anthropologist, <laughs> when in the anthropological, you know, the paper, he, he wrote, you know, it's a scientific paper published in an anthropological journal and, and it's written very dry. You know, it took me a while to realize what I was reading, you know, cause, uh, and at the end he says, um, the, uh, I think it's the Kulina people. He says the Kulina engage in this ritual quite often and with great humor. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I wrote to the anthropologist and I said, listen, that song where they're singing, we want meat, you guys don't give us enough meat. Is there a double entendre there? And he said, yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But doesn't that imply, it's so funny, but I, I, like I was saying before, thinking back to tribes and stuff, for some reason, I just never imagine, you, you don't think of the humor for some reason. I, I don't know what, why that is, because humans are so humorous and fun and stuff. And I just imagine it's just like hard, hard life. And it's it's interesting to think of the humor like that. But I mean, yeah. I just, th doesn't that suggest there is an element of sort of that sort of trade uh, between women and men, that the men get the meat, give the women the meat, and then they get sex yeah sure sure but it's sort of a parody of it you know i mean the men in in hunter-gatherer groups there is sexual like a, a a sort of the men tend to be the hunters and the women tend to be the gatherers now, there are exceptions to that but uh the women tend to hang out with the kids during the day the men tend to go out and and hunt for meat um the women in most cases supply most of the calories, most of the food that's that's eaten in the form of roots and seeds and nuts and insects and small rodents that they snare or whatever or net. Um, so they supply most of the day-to-day -day food that keeps people alive, which, by the way, ties into what I was saying earlier about respect for women and female autonomy and um, you know, being highly valued, uh, as opposed to agricultural society where women are, you know, on a par with agriculture, with animals, you know, with cattle or whatever, um, basically breeding animals. Um, 
But, uh, so the, the meat, when the men come back with meat, it's sort of a celebratory thing and, uh, you know, a reason to party, but it's totally unreliable as opposed to the, you know, the seeds and the nuts and the roots and all that. Chris Ryan, ladies and gentlemen, get his books Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death in all the normal places as well as in the link in my show notes. He's a lovely man and he's so fascinating to talk to, so I hope I get good reason to do so again in the future. Actually, we'll hear from him just next week because part two will be coming up. There's no bonus episode today, there will be next week, but please do sign up anyway uh, if you haven't already on patreon.com slash andrewgold or by subscribing or joining on Apple or YouTube. Thank you so much to my newest YouTube joiner, Donna Pfeffer. That's my third member to join on YouTube and I appreciate it very much, Donna, and and, and hope that, that it lives up to expectations. On Patreon, there was Vladimir A, or Vladimir A, uh, not said the full name just you know in case thank you so much Vladimir I really appreciate your support too and many of you have been signing up on Apple as well I don't get your names but that is a huge help and is taking me slightly closer to being able to make a living out of the podcast and I know that's what you all want um, please keep reviewing on CastBox and Apple. I always read them out. Thanks to Natalie Camilla for her review. She's been in touch since pretty much the first ever episode, so it's really great to see her up there and to see that she's still listening. It's been about 15 months since I started this, and she's been right there with me the whole way. Unfortunately, she gave the podcast five stars and said, I'm not bored yet. Well, that's a good sign. Um, She went on to say, I've been listening since the very beginning and have become quite the fan, even though I have found myself to be a little behind. Dot, dot, dot. Oops. (laughs) It's been great to see, brackets, here how much the podcast has grown in listeners since the early days. Even though I have my favourite subjects, each guest is very interesting and there's something for everyone. Also, Andrew's hosting and the way he interviews his guests is brilliant. Looking forward to catching up. Can't wait to listen to Will Storr's episode. Thank you so much, Natalie. I, I really, really appreciate that. I loved reading that. And I hope you really did enjoy that Will Storr episode, if you got round to it yet. It's one of my favourites. And please do keep on listening and telling your friends. That goes for all of you. In the meantime, have a lovely week. There'll be some surprise episodes dropping on Halloween, so make sure to catch them, and I'll see you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.